Hi and welcome to It's an Arsenal Thing podcast. I'm Tom, your host, and I'm in the company of the ever weird and wonderful Silent Dave. Um, How are you? Um, Nice to have you on board. Um, Well, if you're a Man City supporter, life is good, isn't it? You must be thinking, God, this Premier League, what a doddle. Unbelievable. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. If you're a Manchester United fan, you must be thinking... Where's my penalty? I'm going to have my penalty this week. If you're a Liverpool fan, what's happened there? What is going on? How can you go from runaway leaders last year to this? It's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? And if you're an Arsenal fan, you'll be thinking, wow, Williams rocked up. Williams in the building. And he did. He rocked up against Leicester and he turned it on. Pepe and William in the same team. Looking good. What a mystery. Let's hope we don't have to wait another 10 games for him to turn back up. It was um, it was kind of a, a, it was a great performance and we'll discuss it later. A brilliant, brilliant performance from every member of the team. But when I saw that team sheet, I don't know about you, I was like, oops, here we go. And I bet the old critics were kind of lining up and uh, looking at William and Pepe thinking, God, I could have them later. Didn't work out for you, did it? No, it didn't. On the menu tonight, we've got an absolutely brilliant guest. He's an MBE. He's an author. A former Welsh international footballer who's been described as one of the best goalkeepers of his generation. He also won the FWA Footballer of the Year Award in 1985. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the one and only Neville Southall on the pod. We'll also be covering uh, the Leicester game, which was superb, as I just said. That very finely balanced rematch between Benfica and Arsenal, which is at home in Rome. Did you see what I did there? And also the Burnley game. We'll be looking at that. Um, We'll be nipping over the pond to Isaiah and American Arsenology. And we'll be bolting ourselves in the gun room with Jay. Um, What we've got lined up for you. We'll be talking about our favourite ever goals. Now, initially, this was going to be our top five Arsenal goals. But that's way too hard. We can't do that. There's been so many brilliant goals that we couldn't narrow it down to five so we'll just be talking backwards and forwards about um, what goals we think stand out in our opinion you can get involved as well you can send us your favorite goals in a list one to five if you can manage it or we'll try and read out uh, and select the best ones from your list it's an arsenal thing for at gmail.com send them through now if you could pick a member of the invincible side to pluck out through the corridors of time and put them in the current team, who would that be? Would it be Thierry Henry? Would it be Dennis Bergkamp? Who would it be? Um, Again, it's an Arsenal thing for at gmail.com. Now, it was my birthday this week and uh, amongst all the usual splendid gifts and cards, I awaited the one piece of weirdness that I normally get. And I do. And it's normally from Dave. You know what's coming, don't you? <laughs> well, a couple of years, was it a couple of years ago? I think a couple of years ago, he bought me this oblong box and it was brilliantly gift wrapped. It had ribbon and that flouncy thing in the middle. And um, I thought, oh, what's this? This is going to be good, isn't it? I opened it up and it was a box of wagon wheels. I didn't even know they made them anymore. It was, 
who buys a box of wagon wheels for someone's birthday? Well, they were actually out of date, which is even worse. And Dave said, I bet you haven't had a wagon wheel since you were a kid. And I said to him, well, I didn't even eat them as a kid. I didn't really like them. So um, he helped me out. I'll give him that. He sat there. We had a cup of tea. And uh, he started munching through these wagon wheels for me. So he's very, very thoughtful like that. Um, this year, he bought me a set of alum keys. You know, those, those little hexagonal things that you occasionally get. You, you're searching around your toolbox. Where's my alum keys? Um, not that you say that on a regular basis. Where's my alum keys? That'd be a bit weird. Uh, they're actually on a little sort of uh, stainless steel circle. So you can't lose them. But who buys alum keys for someone's birthday and he said he was being practical which he is but i wasn't going to do some emergency diy on my birthday it wasn't going to happen i was going to loaf around in a sofa pack the kids off somewhere and have a case of beer that's what i was going to do but it's not as bad as his worst 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 ever present which was a black telescopic umbrella which seems like a brilliant idea and it was i mean when i first got it i opened it and thought hmm you know an umbrella I didn't get overly excited. I don't think there's much to get excited about a telescopic umbrella. But anyway, I thanked him. I put it in the cupboard. And then one day, uh, I kind of had a spare moment. I thought, oh, let's have a look at this thing, how it works and all the rest of it. Took it out, its little black sheath, went in the garden, opened it up. And there's a massive pink phallus on the top of it. I kid you not. I was like, oh, and uh, it wasn't, it was happy to see me as well. It was one of those. Um, so I thought, oh, the devil that's what I thought, the devil, I clean that up for you, so I, just, I took it down, put it back in the sheath and lobbed it in the cupboard, Dan tell the missus, she wouldn't talk to him for a couple of weeks, so anyway, I forgot all about it, I didn't tell her, she went out shopping to Canterbury, and it was blowing a hoolie, the rain was bouncing about three inches off the pavement, uh, cars were floating down the road, I made that up, uh, they weren't actually, so she goes to Canterbury Shopping Centre. She's walking through there. It starts banging it down again. And she takes out this black telescopic umbrella and then wonders for 15, 20 minutes as she's walking down to the destination of her choice um, why people are looking at her. <laughs> Needless to say, Dave was in the doghouse for, what was it? Um, about six weeks, wouldn't it? Yeah, she didn't speak to him for about six weeks. And... Um, as a result of my association with Dave, I got a bit of the cold shoulder as well, which uh, wasn't very enjoyable, I must say. It's an Arsenal thing podcast. Fun, football and conversation. Episode 12A, we're calling it 12A because we're slightly superstitious and we don't want to use the 1-3, is entitled, Will the Real Willian Please Stand Up? Please Stand Up. Bit of a slim, shady vibe going on there. Well, it looks like the brakes are coming off and we're getting ready to come out of lockdown. Hurrah! Um, I, I've seen people licking pub doorways and windows. Uh, it's no good for you. They're not flavoured. Hey, do you remember when you used to go to a coffee bar with a friend, eh? You'd go in this room eh? and there were tables and chairs and you'd sit down with a friend and drink coffee and have a chat. Do you remember that? Um, do, oh, do you remember when you used to go to a, a football stadium? There's this big, massive place called a football stadium. You used to pile in there with your friends and there'd be loads of strangers uh, and they support different teams and you cheer your team on. Hmm? Hey, do you remember that? Oh, do you remember when you used to go swimming and uh, accidentally taking some of the water and then realise it had been round everyone's private parts? Oh. <laughs> 
It's an Arsenal Thing podcast with your hosts, Tom, Silent Dave, Isaiah, and Jay. Fun, football, and conversation. Right then, let's move on to Arsenal v Benfica in the second leg of the Europa League tie. Arsenal were as close as anyone could be to an early exit, and you could almost read the headlines, which would have included words such as suicidal, implosive, calamitous, just to mention a few. And just as sports writers gathered around the Arsenal corpse, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang resuscitated the body with a decisive goal in the 87th minute. But it all went wrong early on. Let's rewind. We all knew that the 1-1 draw would make a nervy affair out of this second leg, but no one could have predicted just how difficult an experience this would turn out to be. That's Arsenal all over, making simple things incredibly difficult with consummate ease. It could almost be the club's motto. And this particular evening was a test of anyone's devotion, faith and nerves. Arsenal had been guilty of not taking their chances and at this level it's a sin, one which will dump the offender out of the competition. Louise and Xhaka, normally the princes of folly, handed over their crown to Danny Caballos whose touch, for me, has been poor of late and he obliged with two epic howlers to put Arsenal on the verge of the exit door. For a player of this quality, it was surprising, but it would turn out to be a night packed with twists and turns and an unexpected reprieve. Around the 20-minute mark, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang lifted the ball over the Benfica keeper from an exquisite Saka pass, but the script was about to take a turn for the worst. Saka nearly sealed the deal in the 40th minute with a cute Caballos pass, but Helton somehow managed to get enough on it to put it behind. Caballos then opened the door for Benfica by giving away a needless foul. Consalves then delivered a stunning free kick over the flying Leno and the game was back in the balance with fans swapping beer for something stronger. Around the hour mark, Helton hoofed a long ball upfield. Caballos misjudged the header to Leno and Silva popped up, almost anticipating an Arsenal implosion to score the goal. The heart sank to new depths in a season where one thought there were no more levels of disappointment. Thankfully, Kieran Tierney decided he quite liked playing in Europe and he'd be damned if his goofy teammates were going to deprive him of the experience. He'd been superb in this game, but he hit the heights when William hit the accelerator, pulled back for Tierney in the 67th minute. The Scot took a touch to his left, then a touch forward just to get the range and then unleashed a bullet of a shot. Arsenal were back in business and all fired up courtesy of Tierney and the player ran around pumping his fist and shouting and glaring at teammates, a genuine Braveheart moment. Then as pacemakers started malfunctioning because of the tension and drama, Aubameyang snuck in at the back post in the 87th minute to head in a beautifully flighted sack across. Arsenal have pulled a win out of the fires of hell, but they can't keep hoping for miracles in foreign lands. They'll have to do way better than this. We've been talking about it for ages. It feels like for years. They have to take their chances, convert their goals. And once they've got that advantage, shut the door and hang on if necessary. They've also got to cut out the unforced errors because that is killing us. We're just gifting goals left, right and centre. And at this level, you cannot afford to do it. Olympiacos next. Let's see how that goes. Out of the kindness of my heart, I'm giving away an interesting fact. Anyone want one? I'll have one. You can have one, sir. Definitely. 
It's courtesy of PremierFootballUK.com, BleacherReport.com and SportMob.com. Transfer fees, they've, they've gone mental, haven't they, over the last few years? Um, what would £75 million buy you today? Uh, you'd probably pick up Ronaldo's shin, ankle and foot, and not including the sock. But back in the day, you could get a bargain. Check this out. Ernie Blenkinsop, proper Northern name that. Blenkinsop was a left-back who would become one of the most respected English players of the early 20th century. He was traded from Cudworth Village, where's that? To Hull City in 1921 for £100 and a barrel of beer. Canny those Northerners, cash and a beer. Um, that's how to do a deal. Hey, that Albert Peckinbottom bottom in goal. I'll give you 20 quid and a packet of Rolos. He went on to play for Liverpool and was signed at a cost of 6500 on the 15th of March in 1934. If you think that's cheap, think on. Manchester United signed Angel de Maria from Real Madrid for a sum of £59.7 million, but he never looked as if he would become a massive star or high earner. What few fans know about de Maria was he was once sold between Argentinian clubs for a few footballs. According to reports from Argentina, de Maria moved from Torito to Rosario Central for a mere 35 footballs. I'd only give him 24. 35 footballs? Yeah, I wonder what his wages were like. Um, he was an odd one, wasn't he? If Wallace from Wallace and Gromit had hair, that's what, yeah, you, you can see it, can't you? Uh, never really got going at United. What about red cards? Um, how many red cards do you think is the maximum that was issued in a game? Well, it's funny you should ask that. There is a massive record here. The first of two games which uh, share the record for the most red cards in history of football was between Claypole and Victoriano Arenas in 2011. Crazy scenes occurred in the fifth tier of the Argentina Football League. According to the Independent, the game turned into a mass brawl after two players were dismissed in the first half. The second red card descended into chaos when players went lunging into tackles and uh, there were a repeated standoffs between the players. It boiled over moments later uh, with managers and coaches entering the pitch with fists flying. Some fans were also seen joining in. The referee, Damien Robinho, had no choice but to give every single player a red card and issued 14 further dismissals to the substitutes and the coaches. After that crazy game, Victoriana Arenas manager Domingo Sagana was quoted as saying they wanted to kill me meanwhile his opposite number Sergio Michelli said the referee overreacted to the brawl he believed that most players were trying to separate each other but the referee got confused and sent off every member of both teams how brilliant <laughs> gotta love it and you so the total comes to 36. He sent off 36 people. Who's he think he is? Mike Dean. It's an Arsenal Thing podcast with your hosts, Tom, Silent Dave, Isaiah and Jay. Fun, football and conversation. Right, let's move on to the Leicester game. Well, well, who could have foreseen this? No Saka, no Aubameyang and a gifted early goal to the hosts. Yet Arsenal ran away, won three victors with a side that looked decidedly eclectic. But Arteta had a plan, even if it wasn't the one that we all imagined. William, Pepe and El Nenny in the same side. Was Arteta trying to tell us something about the remainder of this campaign? Had he given up? 
In my pre-match blog, I said that this game was entirely winnable and even predicted a 2-0 win for the Gunners, which resulted in mass mocking on social media. I actually posted, call me daft, but I think we'll sort Leicester out today. I was labelled daft by an assortment of Debbie Downers that are only happy if they're truly miserable. Many didn't give us a chance, although some kept the faith, including football commentator, writer, pod panellist and columnist Melina Birch. Vardy and Co. had been on a fine run recently, and with the kickoff just moments away, the stomach muscles tightened and the pulse rate increased. Doubt was starting to tap me on the shoulder, but I wasn't about to give anyone the satisfaction of deleting the comment on such a fabulously sunny Sunday in late February. Who would have thought that what I outlined previously in the earlier blog that morning was even remotely possible? I may have been somewhat drunk on optimism when I wrote, Defeat here isn't an option. Arsenal need to start gathering points with some testing games ahead. Yet the odds favour the inform Leicester City, and that's exactly why I'm going to suggest it's winnable. I added, It's no secret that Leicester go through phases in a season. At times they resemble challengers, and on other occasions they look like also-rans. It's high time they resembled the latter. However, this won't happen unless every single player in the Arsenal side is on the same page and are prepared to scrap it out for a full 90 minutes. Arsenal pulled off the win with real aplomb, conceding though after just six minutes. With the Arsenal defence half asleep, Yuri Tillemans managed to rob Xhaka on the left. He surged forward unopposed before releasing a hard low shot past Leno. And suddenly the contest looked very familiar in scoreline and tone. Arsenal appeared shocked but tried to get back on terms while Leicester looked like they were just going through the motions. Soaking up the pressure just to hit on the counter with a long-range punt, no doubt, to Jamie Vardy as per usual. Not that you could blame Leicester for that type of tactic. It's been incredibly successful as a game plan up until now. Gradually, Arsenal sensed that Leicester, minus Madison, looked a little too content and comfortable. And when David Luiz popped up to power in a header from a wicked William free kick, that's right, William, after 39 minutes, one sensed that the tide was turning. The boys from Brazil had got Arsenal back on terms and Leicester began to look very vulnerable indeed and slightly baffled. This wasn't in the script. Whatever Arteta has been working on with William and Pepe in training, it resulted in both looking like new players, especially William who was full of purpose and intent. Not since the Fulham game has the Brazilian looked so bright and suddenly resembled the player that we all used to see in a Chelsea shirt every week. He'll have to maintain that type of form because he's under threat on the left from Aubameyang, Martinelli and Pepe, with Saka an almost permanent fixture on the right. But this will have done his chances of inclusion no harm at all. As for Pepe, I felt he's been building up to this performance over the last three or four games and he was up for this extremely important contest. Lacazette thought he'd won a penalty after 12 minutes by forcing himself between Ndidi and Tillemans only to see VAR rule it out. What's new there? Finally, he got his reward 45 plus one after Ndidi handled in the area from a curving Pepe effort. Lacazette punched the ball into the net and the tables had well and truly turned. Xhaka connected with Odegaard for the final flourish, 52 minutes gone, with a cute defence-splitting pass that looked like it had too much on it. But Willian, him again, poked it back for Pepe to tuck in, and that was that. It's time to enter the gun room for a natter. Right then, Jay, how are you? Welcome yeah, to the gun room. Needs a lick of paint, doesn't it? it? Smells of rust in here. <laughs> yeah, I'm good, mate. Thank you. How have you been? All right. 
Yeah, not too bad. Uh, just looking forward to totally clearing the decks and getting out of this pandemic thing, uh, you know, the lockdown business. Um, well, last time you were on, we did um, we did your five, your top five Arsenal players. And uh, I've got to tell you, it was a really enjoyable chat. So this time around, it's we, what I tried to do was to whittle it down to my favourite five goals. Yeah. But I just found that was completely yeah. impossible. Yeah. Worse, yeah, worse a... than the last gig. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, trying to get the goals down to five. Um, with so many great goals down the years, like, like you say, so difficult. I think it's probably best that we just like um, come up with the goals and then mm-hmm. maybe choose your favourite if you've got one. It's going to be impossible, I would have thought, but we'll, we'll have yeah. a Yeah, so I'm, I managed to... Um, I've sort of got ten, but... Um, <laughs> I got, That's I've what got, I came up with. Yeah, I've got five that... So I've decided to come from uh, the angle that basically the goals that made me cheer the loudest or react in the most... Um, Lunatic sort of, fashion. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so my first choice, uh, I'm going to take you back to the 14th of March, 1998, when uh, we went up to Man United with um, an, a certain Alex Manninger in goal... Um, and we were, I think we were six points behind Man United at the time, but we had a few games in hand. And we went up there and we put in like a vintage Arsenal performance. Um, and we, we managed to managed to beat Man United 1-0, uh, thanks to a goal from a certain Mark Overmars. Ah, uh, legend. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I'm sure you can remember the goal, but it was a, a long ball pumped up field and it was um, flicked on by an Elka and uh, an Overmars picked it up and tucked it away in the way that he did so often. And I mean, you know, I was, so I was, believe it or not, still at school back then. And um, I was 15 years old watching it at my at my parents' house. And I just, you know, back in those days, Man United were the team to beat, right? And the rivalry... I suppose it was in its sort of early days, wasn't it? The Wenger-Ferguson rivalry. But for me personally, you know, seeing that goal go in and, and beating them and then and the camera panning to, to the away end, you know, seeing the reaction, it resonated with me. And I suppose I suppose it did with everybody, all Arsenal supporters on that. He day, was a very it? special player, wasn't he? It was just so typical, you know, of, of, of Mark Overmars at that time. You know, you didn't get much sort of defensive work out of him, but what he offered going forward... Nobody uh, cared. <laughs> no, no. He, and that goal, you know, and I, I remember at the time, such, because um, you, you knew even though it was in March and we, I think it, it took us to just three points behind him, you knew that was such a key, pivotal moment in, in Arsenal, uh, you know, maybe just psychologically gaining that advantage over such a strong Man United side with such a great manager. And it sort of meant that Wenger had, I suppose, I mean, he'd, I suppose he'd already arrived. He'd beaten the hoodoo, hadn't he, really? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, from that moment on, the Arsenal-Man United rivalry was, you know, it began and it went on for so many years. And, and for me, that was a major part of that. I think that's my favourite period of time when it just started to get uh, really interesting with Wenger and Ferguson locking horns, two really good sides, one with uh, absolute flair, almost artistic, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And then you've got the dogged, determined uh, playing for like 98 minutes. You never could write Man United off. No, no. And to beat them, it was amazing. Yeah, because it was only, you know, a year later, a year or two later that United won the treble, right? So you're talking about a great Man United side. It was a and fluke. That, 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, that's a, that's that's a conversation for another day. Um, but great goal, great goal. And it is similarly moving on to sort of my next goal. Bit, so so fast forward to sixteenth of March, twenty eleven, in the Champions League, um, when our Charvin scored against Barcelona at the Emirates. Uh, Fabregas picked up the ball in the middle of the park, uh, sweeped it out to um, Nazari, took the ball on, cut it back beautifully right into the path of, a, uh, of our Charvin and he, and he popped it in the bottom corner. And you know, like the scenes at the, you know, I was at home, uh, but the scenes from inside the stadium, you know, I can only imagine what it was like inside. And our Charvin, you know, he was similar in similar to Overmars in the sense that you got very little from him defensively, but he offered you so much going forward and he won games by himself and that goal, you know, against, and against, again, against another fantastic um, opposition, you know, the likes of Ibrahimovic, Messi, um, Iniesta, you know, and, and you had Jack Wilshere in the middle with Fabregas and, uh, and just the, the commentary. It pub side, was it? <laughs> no, no. It was, a, you know, some, some fantastic footballers on the pitch. And, uh, and and the game, you know, okay, I think we didn't go through in the tie, did we? But but what a great moment! One of the one of the best Emirates era moments for me. Me, you know, just individual goals. It was Where a shame. were you? Well, I was I was sitting at home um, watching the game. We'd we'd not long had um, our, our second child, so um, I was doing my best to try and not wake up <laughs> my daughter at the time, but. What you mean, uh, like I'm doing now? I'm not trying to wait out, <laughs> baby. <laughs> but it was the type of goal that you couldn't help it. You know, it was you couldn't help but but, but just let out some some you know form of emotion. Uh, a fantastic, great, great, great moment. What's um, what's your next one? So out of a massive uh, plethora of goals <laughs> to choose from. So I am going to choose Henri um, when he came back to the club in uh, in 2012 from. Uh, he was brought in on loan, wasn't he? Um, yes. I think it was uh, in the break. Was it in in the mid season break or the 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 United the, the American uh, sort of pre season? And he came in on loan. He looked a bit heavy, bless him, um, or heavier than he was before he left. He came um, came off the bench, third round FA Cup tie against Leeds, to rupturous applause. And uh, I don't think anybody could have. You know, expected what was going to happen. You know, when him receiving the ball from Alex Song and opening his body up perfectly and slotting it in the bottom corner and running off. And again, you know, one of those. And just talking about it now, you know, it's giving me goosebumps. Uh, Henri, he brought so much to the club and so much, uh, so many great times, but but not not necessarily at the Emirates. And I just felt that you know it was. Oh, no, sorry, not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily at the Emirates. Uh, more at Highbury. And uh, this, you know, in a game that I don't know if you remember, we didn't play particularly very well. Leeds had a lot of the ball and probably should have put us out in 2012. But Henri came off the bench. You know, he took fairy tale stuff. You know. Um, Ran off. I don't think he really knew it. If you, if you watch back the celebration, I don't really think he he knows what to do. He's lost in the moment, and, it, and he ends up, you know, running along the touchline to to, to Wenger. And they embrace, and it's just a great moment, you know. Just uh, again, not technically, probably not the best goal you'll ever see, and, and, and I'm sure you could bring up a list of Henri goals that are just like that, you know, Taylor. You know, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> Typical Henri finish collects the ball, uh, a through ball, takes it on uh, on his on his right foot, opens his body up, 
and tucks it beautifully in the bottom corner. And and the scenes afterwards were just just amazing, you know. I think the camera panned the the BT Sport coverage, I think it is at the time, or Sky. The camera pans to David Beckham and he's there with his children and they're all on their feet, uh, smiling from you know, great scenes. And like I say, just t- talking about it now. You know, you get you get goosebumps. Great. It's quite weird, really, because when uh, it was mentioned that he was going to be loaned back to us, I, I just I didn't even see it coming. No, I kind of thought that's that's never going to happen, and there he was. Mm. Yeah, Happy I mean, it was a fun, it was a funny time, wasn't it? Because I think we ha- we loaned we bought in Sol Campbell back. Do you remember? And we we um, I think we brought Jens Lehmann in a bit later, and. I suppose it shows, uh, you know, bringing back those players at the age, uh, at the ages that they were. I suppose it showed that Wenger didn't really have much faith in, in the quality that he had at the club, you know, to bring them back, and, and they all did pretty well. But that that moment, uh, wow, you know, fantastic. It was always impressive to see Omri, and what I liked about Omri in particular, I think we've mentioned this before, is the kind of swagger that he brought as well. There was yeah. like an entitlement that he was going to yeah. score whenever he got yeah. the ball. That mm-hmm. arrogance that only a yeah. good top, top quality player has. Yeah. Supremely confident, uh, believed, you know, fully believed in his own uh, ability and rightly so. I mean, for, for, for many years, you know, we were at a completely different side when he wasn't playing. Right. Yeah. You know, he was, uh, we had a, we had a good group of strikers, you know, at one point, you know, Carno, Will Todd, Bergkamp, uh, and obviously Don't forget Henry. Nicholas, Nicholas Bentner. <laughs> Nicholas oh, Bentner, yeah. <laughs> what a card. <laughs> but, and, but whenever whenever Henri was out of the team or arrested or injured or suspended, we were just, uh, we were half the side. Um, and, and I mean, can you imagine uh, being, you know, a, a young a young Jack Wilshire or a young player back in 2012 when, when Henri comes back into the changing room, you know, uh, would have been, it would have been immense. Um and uh, yeah, brilliant, brilliant moment. Right. What's your next one? So my next one, and I, um, I think, you know, I've obviously got to include an Ian Wright goal. Um, oh, you've got to. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to take you back to 1993. We played Everton at home. Uh, and um, Wrighty receives, it's quite a direct ball, sort of uh, centre of the pitch. And, Righty in, in the way he does, he's running onto the ball and he, he in front of him he's got the Everton defender Matt Jackson, I think it is, and he, he flicks it over Jackson's head with his right foot, then he flicks it over Jackson's head again with his left foot, and he's in on goal. Uh, Neville Southall's coming out and he just deftly just drops the ball over the top of, of, of Southall's head um and runs off into the into the north bank and they're all cheering and and you know, you took Technical ability isn't always something that that is associated with Wrighty. You know, it's far less spoken about when you think of Ian Wright and when you think of the, of how he was as a footballer. He was a poacher. He was a, an immense goal scorer, but he was technically very good as well. And that was a great example of that. And I love the celebration. He just runs straight into the north bank. Everyone's cuddling him and cheering, and and that's uh, and I think for the majority of the fan base, that's how they see him now these days. You know, nearly nearly what thirty years later. I think as well, if uh, you know any of the younger listeners are um, sort of tuning in, go onto YouTube, look up right his goals because they're you say he's a poacher and he was, mm-hmm. but little touches. Uh, he was yeah. aware of everyone around him. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a great eye for goal, but he, he could just like do everything really, couldn't yeah. he? Yeah, and that, that was like, that's a really good point because he scored. You know, there's obviously many goals that I could have included, but um, he scored a goal against Leeds away where he it doesn't even look like he looks up and he just he's on the edge of the box and he chips the ball over Lukic into the bottom corner. Uh, there's another goal against uh, Swindon where he's about 30, 35 yards out where he seems to sort of chip lob keeper from that distance. You know, he had he had a, an ability to score all different types of goals. You know, he scored a goal against Man United in the in the Charity Shield where it was like a volley with his back to goal. Technically, he was much better than I think a lot of people give him credit for. And I know I've mentioned it many times on the podcast. Uh, my favourite player with, without, without question. Uh, and... Like we could have, we could, we could make a pod just talking about him, couldn't we? You know, we might do that. <laughs> Why not? Uh, yeah, yeah. Only so, we could get him on. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> I have tried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be that would be superb. Right. What are so, we up to? Um, so this is number five. Number five. Wow. So. This is um, my, I suppose it's a bit of a curveball, but I'll, I'll just give you a bit of context. Me and me and my wife were on holiday in uh, Lanzarote at the time. And uh, you obviously go out and watch the football. And we were in a uh, one of the bars in Lanzarote. And it was, I would say, 70, 30 Spurs fans in there. So 70% of Spurs. And there was sort of the, the odd Arsenal fan knocking about. And it was going back to, to 2018, um, the the Unai Emery sort of Arsenal side, and we were playing them at the Emirates. And Harry Kane and Eric Dyer had scored for Spurs, and they they'd led in that game. And we managed to we managed to come back some some great goals from great goal from Aubameyang, uh, Lacazette. But the goal for me that I, I want to talk about is the Lucas Torreira goal. Excellent goal. Uh, yeah, Aubameyang comes in with the ball off the right-hand side and he plays a lovely through ball into into Torreira's path. Torreira doesn't have to break stride. I think he takes one touch and puts it, places it, almost side-foots it into the into the bottom corner past, uh, past Loris. And, I mean, for the majority of the game... I'd, uh, Spurs were sort of they were in, they were in front and 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 uh, you know the bar I was getting oh some friendly banter or friendly uh, sort of a bit of abuse but you know you, you take it on the chin don't you and just say you, one thing to the trophy cabinet yeah yeah and, and the uh, word and, empty <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and and I mean we were that Arsenal team we were in a, a decent run of form at that point under Emery and we had a player in Torreira that, I mean, to this day, I still think he's could still be quite useful for us. Uh, I think he was misused under Emery quite extensively, you know, played him a bit, a little bit too far forward, but I still think he can do a job for, for Arteta, but this goal. And, and again, I love, you know, at these moments, I love looking at the crowd. I love looking at when the, when the, when the camera pans to, to the crowd and seeing what you know just how crazy everybody's going because you know it means so much in such a big game it means so much to the fans and it's a shame I, that he... I thought from that point he he just lit the blue touch paper you know he was gonna mm. be a major major star for Arsenal yeah and it kind of stopped that was the pinnacle wasn't it of his career yeah yeah and that's what I was just about to say that it was such a shame that he, can, he couldn't kick on from it um, but I still, I, I don't think it's, it's, I don't think we we need to close the door on Lucas yet, but what a great goal. What a great goal. There is one other goal that I, I do want to mention. Sling it in. Let's have it. So 
Uh, it's the Aaron Ramsey winner in the uh, 2017 FA Cup final against Chelsea. Um, it was my, I was lucky enough to go to the game and it was, I was, uh, it was my first FA Cup final that, uh, that I attended and, and we were playing obviously against a Chelsea side that had just won the title uh, on, with uh, with Conte as manager. So they were, they were in line to, to, to sort of do the double and we were heavy underdogs, but we bossed the game. We should have been, we should have been out of sight, you know. Um, Chelsea had very few chances. The goal they did score was, uh, I don't know if you remember, it was that Costa sort of miskick that, that went under Espina. Um, and it was, I remember when he scored that, it was like, you know, I couldn't quite believe it because we, we, like I say, we were in charge for the majority of the game. And then, and then Olivier Giroud gets in on the left-hand side almost straight away from kickoff after Costa had scored, crosses it in, and there's Aaron Ramsey. And, I mean, being inside Wembley Stadium that day, I, I had a, a couple of uh, elderly ladies sitting next to me in Wembley and, and we were all hugging and their, their little bag of sweets were flying everywhere. And, well, there's um, originals. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I mean, the atmosphere was fantastic. And, and then we could have scored more, but that personally, an FA Cup, you know, seeing your team win the FA Cup, for me, still a great trophy. See your team win at Wembley uh, was a was a great moment personally, and and um, it was great for Wenger, you know, Ramsey. I really goal. miss Aaron Ramsey. I, I yeah. think he had uh, another two or three seasons with us easily, and I don't think we've actually replaced him as a player or as a person because he had real drive and tenacity, yeah. and he was up and down that field, and you could bet your bottom dollar that when the ball was played in, he'd suddenly appear from nowhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a fantastic yeah. box-to-box player. Sort of big game player. Always popped up, didn't he, in, in, in the big games. And, and I'm, 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 I'm happy that he's, that he's doing well for Juve. You know, it, yeah. there's that murky sort of uh, story, of, you know, the, the, how it all came to pass that he didn't get the contract or he was asking for too much money. To be honest, I'm not really too bothered about that anymore. He, he provided great moments, like I just mentioned, like the, the, the winner against Hull. You know, so many goals against Spurs. Obviously, the awful injury, but he came back and he's and he's done so well. I, I when he was at the club, he was a starter for me, and he, that wasn't always the case, was it? He, no. I think he was quite an easy player to, to 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 drop, if that makes sense. Wasn't very controversial. Didn't really. Um, I can't imagine on the training ground he would cause. Wenger or, or the coaches any sort of issues uh, attitude was always right and 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 what and, and again just going back to the goal what a great goal I've got a few friends that are Chelsea supporters so it's Take always nice friends. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah and another a couple of other goals that didn't quite that, that I just wanted to mention there's obviously the Henri goal against Spurs that we spoke about last week where he runs the length of the pitch, picks up the ball at Highbury and runs the length that of the pitch. That is a beaut and... I've um, when I was going through my list of uh, goals Mm-hmm. And uh, just reliving them, you know, uh, and watching them again on YouTube. I mean, that is a standout. As you said last time we were on, um, picks it up on the right-hand side and he just hit the thrusters, whizzed through. And there was yeah. no one who had the balls to put a tackle in. No. no. Scared. They were petrified, weren't they, of even touching him. But as well, you you have to get near him. You know, the, the guy is flying with the football faster than any of those Spurs players could run without the football, you know, so mm. what, what a great goal. Second goal, Burkham versus against Newcastle, obviously the, the turn took it on, you know, you talk about technical, uh, you know, that's as good as, 
a good a technical goal as you're gonna you're gonna see. Of course, he meant it. It's Dennis Bergkamp we're talking about here. You know, he did it. He scored brilliant goals. You know, the goals against Leicester, the goals for Holland, as we spoke about before, just just unbelievable, unbelievable. How many you know, assists? Do you know that goal in particular? Um, it's funny when you hear him talk about it because I think Wrighty went over to where he lives, knocked on his front door, and they were reminiscing. You know, uh, yeah. I bet they were there for about a week. Yeah, I bet it yeah. wasn't concluded in an hour. And um, I think he was he was talking back then about how he received that pass because he said it was short and it was Pires out on the left, wasn't it? Yeah, and he kind of the ball in Bergkamp's opinion didn't go mm-hmm. where he wanted it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And yeah. the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there it is. It's short, and he manages in a split second to think to make about that decision it and what he's going to do. I mean, that was mm-hmm. just pure brilliance. Yeah, and as well, the way he picks up the ball after that initial flick, you know, he knows exactly where to get his body, what position to get his body into. If he if he didn't mean it, he wouldn't have got onto the ball straight straight away, would he? You know, he, would he still been, had work to do as well because yeah. uh, Dabidas came back at him and he mm-hmm. he kind of shouldered him off the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, it was and and a good goalkeeper as well to be good keeper. Givens, and, and what you you know the finish from that you know he's very rarely spoken about a, a simple calm side foot into the bottom corner and he runs off just like yeah I'm Dennis Bergkamp this is what I do you know. Well, I think so, we could probably do a righty podcast and a Burkamp one because, <laughs> as you know, I've told you that that's my favourite goal of of all time. Yeah, it just yeah. really is. Adams against Everton. Obviously, I think we spoke about that last week. You know, yeah. stands in front of the North Bank with his arms in the air. Yeah, uh, sun, you know, beaming down on him. Um, I suppose. I, I think it was the way he looked round as well, as much to say, "Donkey, am I?" Yeah. Yeah. And no, he's just he half, half volleyed it into the top corner or the sort yeah. of side of the... Yeah, great goal. And and the last one I just wanted to mention, obviously there are uh, so many more, but it was um, just another another one where, where I was literally out of my seat jumping around was Adebayor's volley against Spurs um, when Fabregas fed him the ball and he had his back to goal. And obviously Adebayor, you know, obviously a bit of a sort of a bit of a villain these days in, in the eyes of the Arsenal sports. And, you know, I don't particularly... Like the, the the chat, but that goal uh, where he, he took it, I think he took it on his chest, put it out, one touch onto his right foot, and then volleyed it right back into the opposite corner from the edge of the box. And I love I, I, I love those shots um, where where these strikers or, or footballers they connect with the ball, and the ball doesn't spin in the air. It just it's just you know, and it, and it goes straight in the top corner, and he runs off, you know. Uh, obviously, it's against Spurs, uh, but what a great goal! And obviously, so many more. I don't know. I'm going to so jump hard, in with one yeah. of mine. Uh, Aaron Ramsey, 2018-19. Um, was it against? Was it against Fulham or Palace? I can't remember now. Oh, I think it was against Fulham. Yeah, was it? Um, was it he, we, he came yeah. on as a sub, mm-hmm. and um, he was straight away. He was involved. Yeah, and I think yeah. it was. Um, I think uh, unusually, I think it was Lacazette. Uh, mm-hmm. who played it out a little bit. And then it went to Bellerin. Uh, mm-hmm. Bellerin managed to find uh, Ramsey. Mm-hmm. And Ramsey took two headers. Right, yeah. I know what you mean, yeah. With yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I think it went to Mikatarian out wide mm-hmm. on the left to Aubameyang. That's right, It comes yeah. back in the box at pace as well. Yeah. And it's another one of those, the ball appears in the box. What are you going to do with it? He, yeah. he wasn't actually flush with it. So uh-huh. he just decides to back heel it. 
Yeah, yeah, he, he yeah, he, moved, he, well, he sort of flicks it, doesn't he? With his and and then, like you say, you just described that the move was so uh, clinical passing. You know, it was they all knew each other, and like you say, the ball went out wide. Uh, Ramsey got in, and, and I think straight away, you know, the, the supporters were, you know, we've got our Arsenal back, um, which you just heard from the from the from the from the. Well, it was stands. described as the goal of the decade, mm-hmm. and I can see why because it was such there was such purity in the yeah. way it was played mm-hmm. and the speed yeah. it's sublime. And that, and that sums kind of Aaron thing. Ramsey up for me. Yeah. And that is what we haven't replaced. Like you said, we haven't replaced that, uh, that goal. And, and I mean, Ramsey's, you, you know, he's got so many goals uh, uh, that we could, that we could, that we could pull up. And I mean, if you look at the current Arsenal side, we've got not, not one player like him. No, not one midfielder rather that you would compare to Aaron Ramsey and say, you know what, they're quite similar. Uh, you know, we're massively lacking goals, aren't we, from midfield? And you know, I don't God. think Emery would have struggled as much if Aaron Ramsey had still been there, because mm-hmm. yeah. he, he had that fighting spirit. He was the mm. old Arsenal fighting spirit, mm. a bit like a, a Vieira in the, in attitude. You know, mm. got to win at all costs, get up yeah. there, support the forwards. Brilliant, brilliant player, I mean, very underrated. Yeah, his goal against Spurs as well at the old at the new Wembley. You know, when he ran through and uh, went round Loris. You know, I think that was his last goal for the club, wasn't it? You know, so many Ramsey moments for a great player. Great player. Right, I'm going to come up with another one, and I'll probably get uh, a load of shitty emails about this. <laughs> but um, Meza Ozil, and yeah. it's um, against Ludogorets in 2016. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, when wow. that ball came over to him, and mm-hmm. he he did things I didn't think you could do with a football. Yeah. Two defenders yeah. in front of him, plus a goalkeeper, and he just manages to floor the lock. They don't yeah. know what he's going to do, and he just does these little gentle dinks. Yeah, yeah, and he just kept doing them, didn't he? He yeah. just, he just kept, and it was like I remember watching it on TV. Like like, oh my session. days, what is he doing? Yeah, yeah. From that point, again, uh, we're talking uh, uh, about players who you think are just going to kick on. I thought from mm-hmm. that game, he's yeah. going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. But I think that's actually the last time I remember he put in a star performance. Yeah. Yeah. What a way to go. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. From you know, again, technically Mesut, there was never an issue there, was there? Uh, no. he to come up to to, to be able to, to to do something like that in a Champions League game. I mean, granted, you're not talking about Bayern Munich or Barcelona or Real Madrid, but still a Champions League game and he and he still had to do what he did. Amazing goal, brilliant goal, but he just never did it enough, did he? He never, yeah. he never. Uh, when, 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 as a supporter, as a fan, when you see something like that, you ultimately expect that, don't you? You expect him to be able to do that on a far regular basis, and he just, he just couldn't do it. All. I think it all goes back to when you look at the uh, players that surrounded him. He had so much quality. He had Sanchez, yeah. uh, Ramsey, Wilshire, Kozola, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah. all these players. Then uh, it's no surprise that his form dipped, really, yeah. because he didn't have yeah. the quality around him. He didn't. No. Uh, him and Sanchez, I think, they were almost telepathic. Yeah, and, and as well, you know, from Mesut's point of view, you always had the impression as well that you know he subconsciously he needed to have players like Sanchez around him, didn't he? You know, for him to be able to believe that the team could win, he, he Mesut is a is a winner, was a winner. Um, played in some, well, played in a really good Real Madrid side with the likes of uh, Ronaldo, you know, um, and he needs those players around, like you say, prime, sort of a prime Alexis Sanchez was two or three levels above the best 
Olivier Giroud, right? And uh, Sanchez would would finish those ch- chances that Mesut was putting on the plate. Um, and Giroud struggled somewhat, didn't he? So... Buddy, you should mention Mr Giroud. Um, <laughs> because um, 2017 against Crystal Palace. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember who gave him that ball, but it's the scorpion right. kick. Yeah. I've yeah. never seen anything like it. No. What audacity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think it's because of uh, because of the player, because of who it is, Giroud. I think he doesn't get spoke about as much, does it? Really? Uh, to be no, honest, that didn't even enter my mind, and that that I suppose that 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 shows what a great goal. Technically, do you know what? I was ploughing through all these goals, and then uh, that suddenly came up. I was I looked at it again. I was like, can't believe it. You know, mm. I still can't believe it to mm. this day. Possibly a little bit of luck involved, but he, he well, knew what to do with it. You've got and, to try, haven't you? Oh, yeah. It was Fantastic. amazing. And Fantastic. I remember running round front room like a nutter. <laughs> just running round, <laughs> yeah, screaming, yeah. shouting, knocking yeah. things flying. And that, Unbelievable. That's what it's all about. It is, yeah. Um, I'm going to go back to uh, going through the archives and stuff to... Uh, mm. Liverpool versus Arsenal, 1971 at Wembley, mm-hmm. FA Cup final. Uh, mm-hmm. I think everyone had given as much as they could give. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a certain Charlie George pops up. Yeah, brilliant. With an amazing thunderbolt. Brilliant. Apparently mm-hmm. he was knackered at that point, And that's yeah. why he laid down on the pitch, because that's mm-hmm. an iconic thing as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Charlie yeah. lays down, they all come along, mm-hmm. sort of climb on him and all that sort yeah. of thing. But I, re- I, I kind of remember looking at that uh, just recently, thinking, mm-hmm. wow, that's just awesome. And he was probably one of Arsenal's first iconic superstars. And that, that, like you said, that scene uh, of him laying on the floor with his arms in the air looking up, like you say, iconic. Uh, everybody knows who Charlie George was. Look, we were lucky to meet him. Me and my son were on a tour of, uh, of the Emirates and he was there. And uh, he stopped for photos with us. Uh, what a great guy! I'm, you know, you're so glad that you know iconic players like like uh, like Charlie is still involved with the club. Brilliant goal as well, to be fair. Smashed it, didn't he? Didn't he just? Uh, mm. And not past the mug of a keeper, Ray Clements. Yeah, it? yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. The next one is well, it's got to be a Spurs. It's got to be a yeah. Spurs one, isn't it? <laughs> um, Liam Brady, who is one of my all-time favourite players, 1978 against Spurs. Just the tenacity that he showed and the bend that he put on that ball. Mm. Brady was a very special player. He could do things and he made it look easy, effortless. Mm -hmm. And uh, every time he got the ball, he had this feeling that he could do Mm -hmm. something magical. Yeah, uh, one of the most gifted players Arsenal have ever put in a shirt. I'd probably say, if you're looking at uh, technically gifted players, Brady, Bergkamp. Yeah. yeah, it was an amazing goal. A because it was against Spurs, but it, yeah. it was just so so typical of Liam Brady. Would you say? Um, and I think I already know the answer to this, but would you say that uh, Brady would be able to play today? You know, Absolutely. modern day football. Yeah. So multi generational. Yeah. And and there aren't many players, are there, that you could say that about that you could that you could say could slot into any generation and be effective. And I mean, I've only seen videos and clips of, of Brady, but I mean, you, you could put him on the Arsenal left or you know, and he'd do a great job, wouldn't they? Or, I think I, anyway. I, I covered a blog and uh just sort of reminiscing about Liam Brady and I actually said what you've just said is he could mm-hmm. play today without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, his control was amazing. His mm-hmm. vision was sublime. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, one final goal, and I can't believe we haven't mentioned it yet, is the Michael Thomas winner in uh, in '89. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, yes <laughs> we haven't yes, mentioned yes. that, have we? I haven't even uh, got that down here. <laughs> can't uh, believe it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to yeah. the corner. I'm going to the corner. <laughs> where I'm just going to put a dunce's hat on. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, this goal has been spoken about, but you know, so many times down the years, um, and it is the best ending to a league season, regardless of what. Sky will tell you about Aguero. Uh, this is the best ending to a Sky? Season. Who are they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, I, and I won't go into great detail about the goal because everybody knows about it. But what I do love is Michael Thomas' celebration at the end when he's sort of rolling around, not really knowing what to do. And, and I saw an interview with him a while back and he was like, that's exactly. He said, we score a goal like that. You have no idea what you're doing, what, what, what's, how to even celebrate and because uh, he yeah. had a clear cut chance, didn't he? Just yeah, before that, he did. And yeah. uh, oh, you just thought he put that it straight in Grubbler, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, what what a what a moment! What a moment! And it's a moment that uh, you know, all all sort of you know neutrals they all love that moment. They all know the '89 moment, don't they? Thompson. Well, there's Thierry at the end saying, you know, it's the most perfect sort of end. It won't be bettered. And I don't yeah. think it will, because uh, I remember the Liverpool players sort of looking at one another going, one minute. Yeah, we've got yeah one Steve minute. McMahon, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 I bet he and, did. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's there's the great story of David Dean at the end, you know, he's in the executive box and, and he, he jumps up in the air when uh, when Thomas scores the winner and he looks at uh, Peter Hillwood uh, and Hillwood just pulls out a cigar, lights it, turns to David Dean, he goes, never in doubt. And yeah. just fantastic, fantastic Lovely. stuff, you know, fantastic. Um, I was going to mention, obviously, we're, we're sort of, uh, with David Dean's mention there, he actually said about one particular player, I found this lad from Lewisham. Uh, yeah. he's, he's like, he plays like a Brazilian, David Rocastle, obviously. Yeah. So I couldn't yeah. leave yeah. Rocky out. No. Um, Manchester United, 1990-92. Yeah. What a goal. He's in the middle of the pitch. Um, he's got a sea of players to wrestle what through. What a goal. Yeah. And he just yeah. he just rinsed them. Yeah. It was like, yeah. come on. Yeah. He and was uh, yeah. The thing about that was apparently he had really appalling eyesight. <laughs> well, that just shows great awareness on the pitch, right? That shows yeah. his uh, yeah. Yeah, what a goal! And he's just uh, he just keeps going, doesn't he? Pops pops it in. He, I suppose you could say that about you know you could see Rocastle playing you know in this in this Arsenal team now, couldn't you? You know, he's, yeah, uh, that that driving midfielder, um, somebody who you know, plenty of energy and and, and loved the goal. Uh, great player. Sad that he he left pretty a little bit too early, right? Some knee issues, apparently, and Jules Graham didn't fancy him after that, uh, mm. recurring knee problems. And he wasn't the same player afterwards. No. After he left no. Arsenal, he went to Leeds, didn't he? Mm, yeah, he went to Leeds, yeah. Uh, and I think I was listening to a, a, another podcast and they were, um, there was a story about Ray Castle. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he had, there was contract issues um, in the summer of 89, I think, and he was stalling over a new contract. And, and I think, George Graham just ruthlessly made him train with a sort of with the reserves. Um, didn't really have much to do with the first team, which I thought was quite sad. But I don't know whether there's any truth in that. I think there might be, but um, yeah. yeah. George was someone you didn't mess about with. Um, yeah, I remember guy. Paul Merson saying that uh, he, he said to him about hurrying up and Merson laughed. 
and he didn't play for, for months after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I think there's a few stories around. Yeah, ruthless guy, but he was a winner, wasn't he? So absolutely, yeah, fantastic. Um, what else have I got? I've got uh, Henri's goal against Manchester United. We've mentioned this before. Two thousand two. Yeah. Uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's outside the box. Ball mm-hmm. pops into him, and all he does is sticks his oh. toe on it, flicks it up, mm-hmm. and then just rinses it into the goal, right into mm-hmm. the top corner past yeah. uh, an oblivious Michael. Michael couldn't get, yeah. get near it. What a goal! What a goal! Uh, yeah, that's the, the the famous celebration that what that, that Budweiser was a celebration. Yeah, that's it. it that yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, Fantastic, vintage Henri, you know, unstoppable. And he, 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 he did that a few times against Man United, didn't he? You know, uh, great player. We could do well, it's been brilliant goal. yet again, and we've run out of time yet again. Um, but brilliant. it's it's been fantastic, Jay. Thanks for coming into the gun room, really and we'll it. speak to you on the next one. Take care, mate. See you later. Bye bye. It's an Arsenal Thing podcast. Fun, football and conversation. Our guest tonight is a former Everton and Wales international goalkeeper and was once described as one of the best of his generation. He's an author, he's a tweeter and he's an MBE. Ladies and gents, it's Neville Southall. How are you, Nev? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Um, Funny old times we're in at the minute. Yeah, you could say that, I suppose. Um, no football. Not real football, is it? And no, no crowds. The game's dead at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very strange setup, isn't it? Um, I understand you work with disadvantaged children and set up your own educational consultancy. How did that come about? Was it just something that you wanted to give something back? Um, well, I, I work in a special school in Embervale. It's not, it's not my school. Um, I work in there five days a week. Um, how did it come about? I think from football, when I was at Dover, non-league, obviously. Um, as what happens in football is they sacked me. And I was looking around for something to do. And then I did a football scheme with somebody else. And then I went to work for Kent County Council, believe it or not. And then they decided after two years that I needed to be have a qualification. So I did the qualification. Again, it was in a what you call a PRU, then people referral unit. So taking the kids... We didn't get on with mainstream school and, and trying to educate them. And I've been doing that ever since, really. I did have a, uh, we did have our own company at one time, but I've gone back into the special school now and I really enjoy it. Um, funny enough, I'm just up the road from Dover Athletic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your book. Mine's on the way, by the way. I didn't know you'd done this book. I hadn't seen it publicised anywhere. It's called Mind Games, The Ups and Downs of, of Life and Football. Um, it delves into mental health. It's quite a bold, brave book. Is it? <laughs> yeah, because um, I, I suppose, and, you know, from stuff I'm reading online, uh, sort of reviewing the book, sort of saying, um, it's not the type of book that's been expected by a footballer. And I know that's stereotypical, but, you know, um, there's more in footballers than some would imagine. Yeah, well, I've done an autobiography, to be fair. I think that's so. All the stuff I do on Twitter, really, Harper Collins came along and said, look, we'd like you to do a book around what you do on Twitter and sort of marry it up with things that really happened in football for you and what you saw and what your thoughts are, really. So I go through everything, you know, from racism, LGBT stuff, mental health, everything, really. So it was a... I could compare it to Chairman Mao, I suppose, in, in terms of the, my thoughts and all his. So 
<laughs> did um, you know when you lost a match in that? Did you or you were knocked out of a, a cup competition? Did you find that there were periods of depression? Because I, I think that the two loneliest roles that they say is the striker and the goalkeeper. Did it affect you severely after a loss? No, I wouldn't say depression. To be fair, I, I've driven home a few times wishing someone I could run somebody over, um, <laughs> or something you know, or somebody annoyed me so I could smash into them. But you know, that's only the initial bit. But in, in life, like like sport, there's going to be failures, and it's as a footballer, you're not going to win every game, so you you learn to deal with failure. And the way I tried to look at it was that for every bad day, that, that makes you understand what a good day is. So yeah. I think I went along the road of well, I still use it now. You know, if we got beat, say we got beat by somebody, you know, that's not, not as good as everybody else. So say Arsenal, someone like that, right? Um, then we then we probably. You know, you go on, you, you get fed up of it and all that. But really, how could I change history? We can't go back and replay the game. So but life's about moving forward, not looking. You know, you can look back now and again, but you can't go backwards, so you look forward. And I think it's, it's kind of evident in all the interviews that I've sort of boned up on before the interview. Um, you're you're in, incredibly forthright. And, uh, you know, you are one of these people that is very, very positive, no matter what. Uh, sort of life chucks at you. Well, what's the alternative? <laughs> I, I think we're, we're we're here, and you have nobody has an easy life. I can't think of anybody who's had an easy life. Everybody's had some sort of tragedy or you know bad time in their life. So it's about it's about moving forward. And I think you know we've seen in the pandemic that you no know, things haven't moved quickly enough, so it does affect people. But you can only set yourself up to try and go forward and, and learn and get better, really. And that was my my thing as a goalkeeper was that there's no point in me coming into train if you don't get any better, is it? You come in to be the best you possibly can be, because otherwise, what's the point of doing it? I'm sure you don't do this podcast to be rubbish at it. You try and get better every time you do it. So we well, have hopefully. <laughs> well, you know. And what you'll also find doing anything like that, and you think you put yourself in the public eye, is everybody's got an opinion of you. So, you know, you grow a very thick skin very quickly. And it's not the same on here, but when you're a footballer, you know if you walk into the opposition's half or pitch, then half the people aren't going to like you. That's just the way it is. So you get used to you get used to hate and abuse um, in lots of ways. And I'm luckily... I suppose I didn't have it half as bad as most of the others, to be fair. So, um, yeah, you just get on with things, don't you? What's the alternative? You, you you can't just sit there and do nothing, can you? I suppose yeah. that's how you deal with the uh, the fear of failure, the high expectations, the pressure, no especially in gold, must have been incredible. What's the fear of failure? How can you feel uh, fear failure? Well, it's just one of the things that um, I sort of read in one of the articles. It said that, uh, you know, your your book deals with the fear of failure and expectations and pressure. Yeah, because there is no fear of failure, is it? Because you're going to fail. As a goalkeeper, you know you're going to fail. Uh, and that's just something you got to, you, you know, because when it comes down to it, you're a human being. And if there's no human being on earth, that's got everything right all the time. So you're going to fail. It's just how you work around that failure. And, you know, pressure... <laughs> It's difficult to put in your mind a pressure. You know, I used to go into Goodison and I think, well, however bad I am today, there's 40,000 people that would swap places with me tomorrow. 
So I'm in a privileged position. So what have I got to really be worried about? I'm going to try my best, which means I can't do anything else. If I play badly, then we'll be for the lack of trying. If I play well, great, that's a bonus. But everybody in this ground would love to be me. And, you know... Half as good as you. Well, let's be, let's be honest. How, how is it pressure? I might imagine getting up in the morning, going training, and I'm having a day off on a Wednesday, playing on a Saturday against some of the great players, and then people go, oh, you must be really, really pressurised. Well, well it, it, it sort of is, but then it's sort of not. I'm sure there's heart surgeons up and down the country are far worse than I am. I'm dealing with, you know, I'm being under pressure. That's what you call pressure. Pressure is what the NHS is under. Pressure is what the nurses are under now. When we look at footballers and they go, oh, there's pressure, it's only the pressure that you put on yourself. Absolutely. You learn, to, you learn to deal with that pressure, and everybody does. So expectations, yeah, if you're a big club, there's expectations because you've got to win every week and you've got to be perfect. But you know you're not going to, so you try and, you know, cut them corners, really. You try and give yourself strategies to, to be okay. Uh, the book also deals with a number of so-called taboo subjects, sexuality, homophobia, suicide, and social media. Um, how did you come to write it? Because it's it's a huge sort of spread, isn't it? Football life, all these kind of issues. Well, they're all wrapped into sport, really, aren't they, as well? They're wrapped into life. You can't go anywhere now. I mean, uh, it, it's difficult. But, I mean, I'm weird. The reason why I, I sort of got into the LGBT stuff was because we had a lad in our school who's no longer there now, and he was definitely coming out, but he was homophobic. And I thought, you know... We used to drive him about the place and take him on and pick him up for school. And he was incredibly homophobic. And I, I thought, well, if this kid comes and asks me, you know, you've got to bear in mind that I grew up in a place where nobody mentioned the word gay or queer or whatever you want to call it. Um, and the dressing room was really, there was nothing positive to say about gay people in the dressing room. There never is. I played on the same pitch as um, Justin Fashtu. The friendly and he got absolutely slaughtered, which I thought was disgusting. And then I thought, well, what can I say to this kid? I don't know enough about it. So I went on Twitter and I found a few people and they were really good. And then I started talking to a few trans people. And you start seeing life through their eyes. Uh, and some of their lives, the things they go through were just horrendous. So you can't be really interested in stuff like that, really. The, the racism has always been there because of football. It's just bizarre. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's it's a lot. It's a wide ranging book, but the things that I care about. I've got mine on the way, by the way. Um, did you get any positive or negative comments when people found out close to you that you were doing this book because of uh, the nature of it? No, no, it was, uh, everything was fine. Look, most people know me. I do what I want, and I don't really care what anybody else says. So it's, it's, it's something I want to do, you know, and it's been okay. It's not a football book, but, you know, footballers aren't just one-dimensional people, are they? No. You know, so and that's what people expect, you know. They look at football and go, right, he's got, he's got that and he's got this and he's done that and that's a footballer. Well, people are people. Are people. That's why I like Twitter, I think, and that's why I like people, because you, you never know what you're going to find or who you're going to find, and, and, and I like to know what makes people tick. It's one of the things that HarperCollins like, because obviously on the Twitter, I let everybody use my Twitter account, so there's about 170-odd thousand now, I think, on there. So I let people use it. Um, we do a couple of mental health 
a week, uh, three, I think. So we've got uh, a fellow called Secret Drug Addict, who, who, funny enough, I think does a bit with Tony Adams now and again, does around addiction and stuff like that. So he works a bit with Tony Adams. So he comes on sort of nine till half 11 midnight, you know, which is a, which is a, a good time to come on because people are obviously going to sleep then and they need a bit of distraction. I've got a, a young lady who comes on the Wednesday, does the same. She's for the BME community. So she's good as well. And then I, I fill it in with other people. Because I, what I did work out was that I know absolutely nothing about much, much stuff. And, you know, even though I know a bit about LGBT and stuff, I'm not an expert, so, I, so there's no point in me spouting off on it when I can get somebody who can actually give proper facts and, and answer the questions because they live it. You know, and I, and I don't like people who come on and pretend to be experts when they've never been in their shoes. So I thought it'd be a good idea to have people who would live the experience or are living the experience. And I'm, I'm pushing out there for people to see. Your Twitter account is really entertaining. I've got to say, you, you have a look through there. You can have a have a laugh. You can uh, it provokes a fault. You know, there's lots going on there. If no one's uh, looked it up, they should do. Um, getting to your football career, I mean, for me um, as an Arsenal fan, when we came up against Everton and you were in goal, I was always concerned. <laughs> I, I thought, oh, it's going to be a it's going to be a bit of a problem today. You were so agile, and for me, you're up there with Shilton. Uh, Banks, Jennings, Seaman, Clements, outstanding. Who was your inspiration? Pat Jennings. Jennings was the one for me because you couldn't teach him what to do. You know, if you look at a goalkeeper now, they're so overcoached at times and they're so robotic in the movements. And he was never like that. He was just so fluid and so calm. And it was the calmness, I think, about above everything else. He was so calm. You know, you could never get flustered playing in front of him because he was that calm. No, he could catch him one-handed. He could save him with his knees, his face, his bum. It didn't matter. You couldn't coach what he had. He was just a natural, really. And I liked him from the start. And it was nice. You never heard anybody say anything bad about him. He was always a gentleman. Always had the greatest respect. So, for me, he was the one that I looked to all the time because I thought, yeah. When you when you think of class, you think of him because he's class. You know, and it's when you play against him. I made my debut for Wales against him, which is fantastic for me. Um, I just got my shirt with him and he, he later came to Everton when I was on crutches to be fair to be sub in FA Cup final. So it was really nice to to meet him and I've yet to discover anybody who doesn't like him. So he must be doing something right, must not he? Absolutely. Is it true that you never had a goalkeeping coach until you got to Everton? Well, I had, I had, I had Berry, I had Wilf McGuinness. But I was enough, I was talking about this before. When I played for Winsford United, I moved to Winsford United at, I think, something like 19... Uh, so, yeah, moved to Winsford United, and I never trained with them at all. I never seen them apart from the games because of the, the, they were an hour and a half away. So I never did any training. So I had no goalkeeper training in that in that season, and I managed to get the Player of the Year. And then I got moved to Berry. And when I got to Berry, uh, the manager just got sacked. That signed me, which wasn't a good start, to be fair. And then luckily, Wolf McGuinness, the old Man United manager, was there, and me and him used to go out in the afternoons and. He was great, to be fair, Wolf. He was a reserve manager as well, and he was brilliant. So I was lucky, and then obviously he wasn't a proper goalkeeper coach, but when I got to Everton, we started having a goalkeeper coach, yeah. The goalkeepers are the best coaches anyway, because you know yourself the best. You know, and if you're honest with yourself and you'll improve, if you cheat, you won't, will you? When people meet you and they sort of relive their memories of you in goal, 
do you actually remember the, all the saves that you, you make when they mention them individually? Because uh, Jeff Powell, I think it was from the Daily Mail, about the Mark Falco Spurs save, he said it was um, the best save since Banks against Pele in 1970. Yeah, but I don't look backwards. That's been done now, hasn't it? So I wanted to make a better save. So I mean, there's a, there's a difference between hoping you're going to make a save and expecting to make a save. Do you think your same boat goes out to hope that like you might win the 100 metres? You don't. He, he goes out because he, he thinks he's going to win it. And so when I make a save in training, that was as good as that because there was no crowd and nothing on it. don't matter, but I made save like in training because I worked hard. And I, and I, I, I expect to save everything. So if you expect to save everything and it goes in, yeah, you're disappointed. But so you're never shocked when you make a save, are you? So because that's what you expect. Other people... Yes, fine, fair enough. Um, go, oh, well, that was good and that was good. But yeah, well, well, I know what you expect to have a, a level of performance and uh, you expect to do certain things for yourself. It's only for other people to get shocked, really, isn't it? Because yeah. all good sports people can do what they need to do and pull it out of the bag when they can. And I just thought, well, if I expect to make saves of that, you know, to me, it's like most goalies go and get saved with the, uh, save of the season. Why? They've already made them. Go and get goal of the season and work out how to save them. Who would you say at the moment, uh, you know, looking at the game as it is now, I mean, there's so many changes, isn't there? Who would you say is probably the best goalkeeper in the Premier League? I think it's, uh, I think it's a really difficult one. I think they're all quite quite the same. But I think there's a reason why they're quite the same, in all fairness. No, I think the other Man City's OK. The Liverpool's OK. Jordan Pickett's OK. Lad at Arsenal worries me now and again. Lloris, I think, has gone slightly backwards at Tottenham. Um, is there really good ones in there? I'm not sure. Is there any world, world class that you'd say, right, we'd get into any team in the world? I don't think so. I, I, I still think Neuer's the best one in the world. I, I think because he's got the arrogance to do it and he's got the belief in himself, I think he's far, still far the best. Um, but I think there's also a, a reason why football's flatlined. And I think football's flatlined because we're in a, a sport now where we have the best fitness people, the best psychologists, and people are unmotivated and can't last 90 minutes. And I can't quite work that out. If anything, we, they should be training harder and longer because they play less games and they have more rest, but they're not. And then the other thing is that because you have the fitness people, they're telling everyone to, you know, to stop doing stuff so they're ready for Saturday or on a Tuesday. So I think there's you only improve if you put your hours in. And I don't think they put enough hours in because I think football at the moment is is probably the least practiced sport by professionals than any other sport. I reckon darts players do more work than them. <laughs> well, they spend more time at the board. They'll yeah. spend five or six hours at a board. Footballers don't. In every sport and every walk of life, if you don't put your hours in, you don't improve. You don't. You can't improve doing less. How would you improve doing less? Were you one of these people that went to training and you were the, like the first one in and the last one out? Yeah, that's your job. Your job there is when you go in and they pay you a wage and you're supposed to do your job. The second bit is if you're going to do your job, do as well as you can and be the best you can. So don't aim at anything else apart from being the best. And that's what I tried to do. And I thought every time I walked in, I thought, 
feel a bit shit today. And I think, hang on a minute, but somebody down the road will be doing better than me today. So I need to get off my arse and do what I'm supposed to do. And some of the best days trading I've ever had are one of the ones when I didn't fancy doing it in the first place. And you've gone out and you put the work in. <laughs> and all it's turned out really good. So, you know, it's like anything else. It's how good you want to be and where you get your drive from. And, you know, let's, let's be honest. It's a, it's a great way of life. Why would you throw it away by trying to be mediocre? You know, Absolutely. so you've got to you've got to have a good attitude. And I'm thinking, you know, when I look at some of the players and thinking, you've got undoubted talent, but your attitude stinks. Why don't you want to be the best? Well, I, I'm not sure whether we'll ever see another Ronaldo or Messi, because what they've got is is the full package. How many more behind them are there? I'm not sure. And I and I do think football's flatlined in terms of. Uh, quality and it's and it's flatlined because uh, I think they don't put enough hours in to improve. Since doing the podcast, I've got to be honest, it's um, the football is you just saturated with it. I was talking to uh, Tom Watt not too long ago, and he just said it's one game after another. He said that's what made FA Cup finals so special is it was the only game on the telly, and he's got yeah. a point. Well, it's like everything else now, isn't it? You watch the news, but you don't take it in, do you? Yeah, you watch the football and you think, okay, is it is it any good? It's quite boring at times. So you know, okay, it's boring. Do I want to watch it? Most of the time now, I only watch Everton most of the time. I only watch Everton, and that's it really, because I don't watch the others. I don't think it's a proper season. I have to say, whoever wins the league, <clears throat> you know, Man City have done the best so far. Um, but I don't think it's a proper league. I think I think there is too much football on telly, but. The programmes are too long. The programmes are like an hour before and like an hour and a half after. They just talk absolute bollocks. <laughs> yeah, they because do. It, it gets really tedious. Go, yeah, but they go, this is what's going to happen in the match. This is what should happen. And at half time, they go, this is what should have happened but didn't happen. And this is what's going to happen or should happen second half. But they come at the end, they go, well, that's what should have happened and it didn't happen. So therefore, it should have happened. So we were right all along. And, you know, it's, it's, when I've picked up the papers, and well, I don't, I don't read the paper, but I've looked at some of the new stuff past couple of weeks on the football. It hasn't been about the football matches. It's been about the pundits. It's been talking about the pundits having arguments. And I'm thinking, how shit must the football be that you've got to put an argument before the report on the match? You know, or, or Roy Keane said this, you know, what about the game? What about the? Isn't the game worth talking about? Why do you have to talk about routine stuff? The, the football must be quite shit if you're going to say, well, so and so and so and so had a big argument. Well, so what? They had a big argument. They're not playing. It doesn't matter. Everybody in the pub will have an opinion. You don't mean to say they're all right, but everyone's got an opinion, so there's going to be an argument. And, and surely that's why VAR's so bad, is because everybody's got an opinion. So you've got a VAR that's supposed to come cut every conversation's dead in a pub because it gets supposed to get everything right. What it has done is made it 10 times worse. You know, and everybody in the pub now was saying how shit VAR is. So they've they got all the people together. They've banded everybody together by saying, yeah, VAR's shit. So they've done one thing. They've, gathered, they've, they've made a great team of everybody who hates VAR. VAR it ha- it's been a colossal balls up, hasn't it? You know, you've got the referees in, I think they brought in some new ruling uh, when the season started, you've got VAR, 
Um, VAR can't make the decision. It hands it back to the ref. It's a colossal so, mess. You should just have the people from Gogglebox watching that VAR because they're the, they're the people that spend most time watching telly. <laughs> so they're experts. What we're saying to please is we don't trust you. Right, we don't trust you because we're a big club, and we need to get in the Champions League. So therefore, you might cost us a few quid. So what we'll do, we'll have another person on the sidelines, who's then going to determine whether you're any good or not. And that's not how you're undermining all the refs. Are they saying that the refs aren't honest? Because if you come out and you go right, okay, penalty, and afterwards it's not a penalty, you go, whoa, I'm human, got it wrong. But no. They've got to go over and look at the screen. And then somebody upstairs who's not even refing the game will say, no, no, I think that's a penalty. So they'll, they'll overrule the referee. Oh, they'll, they'll bar the ego, it's this. I'm thinking, come on. So if the two referees can't agree, one of them was watching it and one of them was there, then there's something wrong anyway. Just let the fellow who's refereeing the game referee the game. You know what, as well, it's, just, it's the amount of time it all takes as well. If you're in the crowd there... Never mind on the pitch. If you're in the crowd, you don't know what's going on. No, and I think it's, I think it's just boring. I think so. So what? Here we go. Are the refs human? Yes. Are they going to make mistakes? Yes. Is it a manager on the, in the world who hasn't made a mistake or players who haven't made a mistake? So who are you actually blaming for your shortcomings? And now they want nine subs because you know obviously they don't trust the people on the pitch. What do they actually want? They want twenty-two people to pick from. So they can play the whole match. Whatever happened to the days when you coach your team and you stick with your team? And now it's like, oh, well, we've lost two games. Get him out, he's shit. And get the next one out. And I think it, it's a reflection on society where you've got programmes like The Voice. Um, Britain's got talent. Everything that judges people. So everybody's in the mindset that we've got to judge everybody. And if they're shit, we've got to say they're shit. And if they're good, we say they're good. But in the main, we don't live in Britain's Got Talent. We live in a real world where people are going to make mistakes, and you know. So I think we've got to sit down and say, well, do we trust the refs? Yes or no? Of course we do, because they're honest. They're not going to be dishonest, but they're going to get out of that. So let them ref. This is all about big clubs wanting to be in the top six. Yeah, it's about money, and I think that's why they brought Var in. Not not because you're not going to say they brought Var in to to help Brentford, are they? They bring him in for that. They brought him in so that Brentford would never beat Man United or Liverpool or Chelsea. That's why they brought it in so there'd be no FA Cup shots, so that every decision would be good, and they would never go out on a dodgy decision. That's what it's all about. It's nothing to do with making football better. Not quite working out, is it? <laughs> well, look, it is because everyone agrees on something in football. It's shit. So every fan up and down the country goes, "Yeah, actually, it's we all agree it's shit. Get rid of it." And then what are they going to do then? Getting back to your uh, goalkeeping, um, who were the players that you used to come up against that you kind of thought, oh, I'm going to have my work cut out here today? For Morris, I never worried about anybody. Really? I can't control them, can I? No. So why, why am I going to worry about them? Why should I worry about them? Imagine if I played Brazil and they had 10 world-class players outfield. Who am I going to worry about? All 10 of them? I'd never get any sleep. <laughs> So the thing is, you concentrate on you. You concentrate on what you do, and then hopefully that'll be good enough. Yeah, you look, I love playing against team, right? I love playing against Burkamp or people like that, because 
they were clever. So it was I look forward to them games because it was it was a chance to 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 test your brain against them brain. And that's what I liked about playing against them type of people. You know, the people who come through and just smash it, if you get a touch, you've got a chance of saving it. So there's no finesse. I like the people who were clever and could think. You know, and Arsenal had some fantastic sides, you know, Merce and all that. Great teams where they try and catch it out and they had a bit of brains. So you enjoy them games, you know. And they're the things that you, you get up and you go, like, it's going to be great, this, because they're all lively. It's going to be a really good open football game. Do you know what I mean? And they, they, you never fear anybody. You just look forward to testing yourself against them, really. I used to love playing that at Highbury. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, it was great rounds. The police, though. Because <laughs> we had a thing where we just messed about before the game and tried to kick some of the balls into the private boxes behind the couple. We did it one year and we got one in. And then the second year we came out to, to warm up and the police pulled us and said, no more of that. <laughs> so they'd always remembered from the year before. So. Yeah, I wanted to uh, ask you about um, there's there's been a couple of goalkeeper mistakes uh, over recent years. Um, goalkeepers have been crucified. Um, Arsenal goalkeeper, young lad Alex Runar Arson, and probably the most famous is Loris Karius in 2018 against Real Madrid. I mean, the abuse that they've suffered has been criminal. Well, it's, it's that sort of society now, isn't it? Unfortunately, it's a reflection of society. Everybody gets loads of abuse. So it depends what you put on Twitter, you get loads of abuse. If I say it's in the morning, somebody will say, oh, you're an idiot tonight. That's just the way it is, unfortunately. Goalkeepers are now under more spotlight than ever before. And I do think, especially Jordan Pickford, I think there's been a, a conscious effort to get Jordan Pickford out of the England team. And I'm not sure why, because it's pointless, because the others aren't as good as him. It just seems to be that everybody needs an enemy or everybody needs a target. And I think, you know, you look at them. Carrius didn't play himself. Somebody picked him so he thought he was good enough to do the job and he made a mistake. So what? He made a mistake. Never recovered from it. You know, the Arsenal lad makes a mistake. So what? Everybody makes mistakes. This is what I was saying. I was uh, really worried with that young lad, Renarsson, because uh, it could totally destroy his career. Well, if he's got any sense, he won't look at social media. Um, he won't look at the papers. And he'll just focus on what he does. On what he, what he does, just to improve. Look, I, I give up reading the papers 30, 40 years ago. That was a waste of time. It's only somebody's opinion. All you need to do is get down and do the best you can. What else can you do? You know, there seems to be now... Every pundit's got an opinion on goalkeeping. That's good. That's all good. But we can all sit down and watch, you know, some of Gary Neville's tackles, some of Jamie Carragher's tackles, especially some of Souness's tackles. We can all watch whatever they did wrong. He'd be sent off every week. <laughs> yeah. And then, so you, you look at all of that and say, well, OK. And they go, well, he, he didn't use his right hand. He didn't use this hand. He didn't do this. And I'm thinking, at the end of the day, what's a goalkeeper paid to do? Save the ball, go to net. Does it matter whether he does it with his face or his arse? Right, in a perfect world, maybe. But it's not a perfect world, is it? So why are you worrying whether he, if he saves it with the wrong hand? As long as he saves it, who cares? If you're in an FA Cup final and he saves it with his arse and he goes wide, no one says, oh, you shouldn't have done that. They go, great, you saved it. Who cares? So we're, we're, in, a, we're in a thing where they have to fill space uh, and time and they have to have, you know, pick on people. Goalkeepers get it a lot. 
you know, a lot of them deserve it because they're just not good enough. But there's, there's a few that, you know, no go, nobody wants to be absolutely slaughtered for their mistakes because if we didn't make any mistakes, how would we ever learn? And, and, and they they must know as pundits that, yeah, they've made mistakes in their career and that's how they learn. That's how everybody learns. Everybody messes up. That's how you learn. And everybody's made them. It's just that when you get to a certain stage and you get a bit more consistent, you don't make as many mistakes as the next fella. But you still make them. You know, there's no game I can ever remember when I never made a mistake in. Um, if your Everton side, the best Everton side you were in, came up against Man City, how do you think it would go? Well, well Man City great team, right? Because they pass and move. And they have no physical contact whatsoever. Our team could play... And we had wars. And every team in that, in that era had a war more or less every week. So if you if you want to put the physicality into the into the game, that's it, you've got no chance. Because they have no resilience. They're all gym fit bunnies. They've got no, no resilience uh, against that. So, you know, I think the team with Merson and all that in, they'd win the league now. Because they have the resilience, they have the ability to dig in. No, don't get. Everyone keeps getting conned by. This is the right way to play. You know, if I win, if I won the FA Cup, right, and I booted the ball right down the field and, and going sharp headed on, somebody scored two passes. Would anybody give a monkey's if we did that? We've no. got conned into all this snobbery. Oh, you've got to have three hundred passes. Why? Because at the end of it, you've still got to score a goal. So yes, it's nice to have loads of little passes and look really nice and score a goal. But it's equally as nice to be down a pitch and score a goal in two passes. But there's this snobbery that's grown up that we shouldn't be playing like that because that's not the right way to play. Also, the tactics as well, and it? it's been a big feature over recent seasons, tactics for this and tactics formation. Tactics, tactics are all bollocks. It's about people. It's about people getting people to do what they're supposed to do. Right? Why, why, have, why have all the people who can run and tackle gone for big money? Because nobody else can be asked to do it. What is a false nine? A false nine is somebody who can't play up front and he can't play midfield. So they've invented a position for somebody who's not quite good. <laughs> yeah, defensive midfield players, yeah, because they don't run that much. They just want to sit there, can't be us running, they just run sideways. So I mean it's just I've heard another one tonight, inverted inverted wingers. Wingers playing on the opposite side to the natural foot. Playing between the lines. Yeah, everyone's played between the lines. It's called a byline and touchline. It's just complete snobbery bollocks that somebody's made up. Just to see all that's, that's It is. It's to give it a new twist, isn't it, really? Yeah, well, it's, it's sky. Let's, let's change all the football because we didn't like the old days. Let's change all, all the terminology because we want to sound as if, you know, it's, it's like a doctor talking, isn't it? It's like somebody who's done a degree in medicine and somebody who's gone on Wikipedia. And the person who's come on Wikipedia just comes on with all that bollocks about this, that and the other and talks it all. And you go, why do you need 15 words when three will do? So I think there's a, we've been conned. I think there's a snobbery where they say, well, look, they all look down their nose at Burnley. Why? Why did they look down the nose of Burnley? Oh, it's, you know, they're physical. Well, hang on a minute. Are you not supposed to fight for survival? That's what they keep saying. He's in, they're in a relegation battle. They're fighting for survival. Well, you don't do that by going shaking people's hands, do you? You're getting people's faces to make it really uncomfortable because that's what sort of team you've got. So you, you, you do what you've got. You, dealt, you deal the cards that you've got on the table and you make the best of them and... How, how on earth they can say, well, you know, it's a bit too physical, don't you know, it's all physical. You're shut up. 
grow up and, and, and world class teams and good teams will match the battle and then win it with their talent. As, as you say, up. people like Roy Keane, I mean, 90% of his game was a physical edge. That's how he got through games. He, he'd never be on the pitch. No, not now. And that, that's why it's a con. They've took the physicality out of it and they've come in with all this. Yeah, look, if I had a 50 million, 100 million pound player, surely, sure, I didn't want anybody to kick him because he's too valuable. Like the same as if I had a Rolls Royce in my garage, I wouldn't take it out and let some scallywag try and scratch it. You ain't going to do that, are you? Oh, hang on a minute, ref thought he's tackled him. Oh, can't be having tackling. Don't need any of that. So, yeah, look, it's grown into a sport where it's... This is how bad it is, right? Is there's 20 people who dive all over the place and two that never dive. And the two that never dive are the goalies. Everybody else dives. <laughs> I think the only good thing about the pandemic is it's proved that football needs the fans. More than ever before, I think, there is no football without fans. No matter what you say, all of them people have got massive egos because when you play sport, you've got a massive ego, right? Yeah. So it's like Frank Sinatra going into your bathroom and singing. There's nothing in it for him, is there? There's no audience, there's nothing for him to feed off. So he just goes, oh, I can't be asked for this, I'll, just, I'll just, just do a little bit of singing. In the main, if you've got that big stage and people pull out more things and... There's more energy and there's, there's, there's everything is better. Now clubs have got to realise that they've got to treat the fans that come through the gates as normal human beings who are vital to the club. And I hope to God that when they do start next season, they won't be bumping all the prices up to make up for what they've lost. They should actually say, I tell you what, we're going to keep everything the same. And if anything, we should be making it cheaper. And you know what I'd love to see is that every Premier League team that played at home on Christmas or Boxing Day and New Year's Day, it was free to the fans that came all the time. And I think that would be a fantastic thing for the for them to do, just to give something back to the fans. Yeah, it, what's the ticket price in London like? It's horrendous, isn't it? Thought it cost you fifty quid just to look at a burger in London. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, you, you look at all the prices and you think, well, okay, give them something back for now because you've missed them. So give them something back. Don't take the piss and add on money. Take it off and make it worthwhile for everybody. But what they're going to do is they're going to guarantee that everybody will want to go back to the ground so the demand will be there, which is a which is the wrong way of looking at it. They should be going, we need you. What can we do to give you something back for, for everything you've done for us during, during the pandemic or everything you've gone through? And it'd be nice if they give some back to start with, you know, make the first game free or whatever. Something where they can say to the fans, we appreciate you. And not go, I'll tell you what we'll do. This player who's leaving will make his shirt our prize because he's sodded off in the summer. So we'll give me we'll give you 75 di- discount on him. No, I mean, you've got to give him some back because the fact the people deserve it. And I think they've got to understand that it's not that nobody owns a football club apart from the fans. Because the fans will always be there. The players go and come, come and go. The managers come and go. The board comes and goes. The owners come and go. The only consistent thing in every football club throughout the land is the fans. They need to be looking after them. Neville, thanks ever so much for coming on. Hopefully you'll come back and see us again. It's been absolutely brilliant. It's been a huge, huge privilege. Thanks very much. Thanks, mate. Thanks a lot. You look after yourself, yeah? Oh, I'm going, mate. Don't worry about that. All right. Cheers, mate. Ta.
It's an Arsenal theme podcast. Fun, football, and conversation. From the land that gave you popcorn, drive-ins, Johnny Mathis, and the legitimate right to shoot your neighbor for parking outside your house, direct from the U.S. of A., it's a potpourri of foosball analysis and stuff. It's American Arsenology. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome once again to American Arsenology. Brought to you by the royal family. We're not racist. Wink, wink. I'm your host, William Young. And now, tonight's top stories. Welcome back, me gunners and gunnerettes. Hope this podcast finds you well. And recovered from the soul-draining draw at Burnley. It was a day of spurned opportunities and lax concentration. As Arsenal dropped another two important points on the dry, scruffy surface that is Turf Moor. Time to get right into it. The opening scene of this encounter... Featured a freshly shaven Sean Dyche, dressed in his black trench coat, like some demon barber of Turf Moor. Arteta was roaming his corner in a hooded peacoat ensemble, and referee Andre Mariner was seen cracking a bizarre smile, like some two-bit Popeye impersonator, struggling to get by on minimum wage in a seedy Las Vegas hotel casino. Things looked ominous from the word go. There were some interesting lineup notes in this one, with a Mr. Milkman Callum Chambers getting his first start in an eternity, along with William Borjas de Silva, Pablo Mari, and Thomas Party all coming into the fold. There was notably no room for one Nicolas Pepe after what many viewed as his best performance in an Arsenal shirt against Leicester City. It was another odd omission and a step closer to Pepe becoming the Rod Smart of the Premier League. But in the sixth minute, Arteta's team selection worked to perfection. Granit Xhaka and Thomas Partey set the build-up in motion. With Partey on the ball just above his own penalty area, he delayed, committed his man, and played a neat one-two with Xhaka. Partey then played a pass on the carpet that beat three Burnley defenders and found Willian pinching in field in the orbit of the center circle. William turned, dribbled forward, and then found Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang right on the corner of the box. The Gabonese hitman pulled out his pruning shears, snapping two quick scissors, cutting inside on his right foot, before throwing a dart towards Nick Pope's near post. Pope got a hand on the ball, but could not keep the dart out. Obama Yang scored again against Burnley, and Arsenal led 
with things looking to be going quite to plan. And Mr. Gareth Southgate, the England manager, was in the stands to see Aubameyang crap all over Matthew Loughton and the rest of Turf Moor's 30-something English defenders, making it all the more satisfying to see Aubameyang score. After ten minutes had passed, it was all left side all the time in possession for the Gunners. William was creating a channel for Kieran Tierney that the Titanic could have safely passed. He was moving inside each time they built possession. William has looked better the last few games, and it is astonishing to think he is Arsenal's top assist man in all competitions. Gulp. Callum the Milkman Chambers was busy readapting to the hustle and bustle of life in the Premier League. And in the 19th minute, Arsenal created a solid half chance. William found out Bamayang in that familiar space on the corner of the box. But this time, Aubameyang dropped the ball back to a Thomas party and then began an arching J-run, giving a visual cue for the Ghanaian to closely monitor. Party didn't need asking twice and floated a beautifully cultured chip into the path of the Gabonese assassin. But it was just a toe length too far. In the 23rd minute, there was some good play from Callum Chambers, Bukayo Saka, and Aubameyang. As Aubameyang and Saka worked a 1-2, the ball broke to Saka, and the young phenom should have scored. But he poked his shot agonizingly wide with that magic left foot. But the chance went a-begging. And the pairing of David Luiz and Pablo Mari looked solid with a nice balance and good positioning in the first 25 minutes. William continued to hang out centrally, and Kieran Tierney became the creative focal point of the team again. It was a bit concerning, setting the team up, leaving the $92 million winger out of the team again, and what some would say over-relying on our left back to pull the strings. Thomas Partey was playing the role of maestro and looked a class above the rest. And by the 27th minute, Burnley were hitting familiar hopeful balls into Arsenal's penalty box, but causing very little trouble. Later on, David Louise gave the milkman chambers a verbal scolding for poor marking. Arsenal had a few good counterattacks, and Thomas Partey had a chance to have volley home from a really nice Martin Udegaard pass. But he could not execute, and the Ghanaian blasted his shot wide. But mostly, it was Thomas Partey and Shaka dominating the middle of the park. It was a day when things seemed to be going swimmingly. But then, of course, Arsenal would shoot themselves in the foot 
yet again with the smoking revolver of indiscipline, as they have so many times in so many of the past few seasons. The calamity of errors began with one Pablo Mari, who chose to play Leno, a decision that might well have been questioned, given the high press that was on. He also had William moving to support to his left out wide. He played Leno, who had Shaka checking 12 yards out. It was the wrong choice, but one he felt he could take. Shaka checked his shoulder as the ball traveled. He knew the pressure was on. But inexplicably, the Swiss captain took two touches when one was absolutely required. It was a terrible mistake. The second for Shaka in two games. And despite the plaudits, Shaka does deserve for playing so many minutes, and at a pretty high level, by the way. The mistakes against Leicester and Burnley were mental mistakes. Mistakes that come from being physically tired. And Burnley came close again in the 42nd as Deja Vu struck again for Arsenal. Burnley came close again in the 42nd minute, as Deja Vu struck for Arsenal, and the wind emptied from their sails. It was another shocking end to a half that the Gunners had thoroughly dominated. The soccer and party chances were big, and Arsenal failed to put the game to bed. Burnley kept battling on the scruffy sod of Turf Moor, and the half came to a frustrating conclusion. There were a few key takeaways from the first half. The first, there is a way to play both Kieran Tierney, Nicolas Pepe, and Bukayo Saka in the same team. It involves playing Emil Smith-Rowe as the number 11, moving Saka to attacking center mid, and allowing Pepe to play his favorite role on the right wing. It truly boggles the mind as to why Mikel has not thought of trying this yet. Second, William got minutes ahead of Martinelli. Again. The tactical instruction for William did not seem particularly challenging. It seemed easy to onboard. Come way inside to the center circle in possession. Give Tierney space to create. So then, it seems hard to believe that Gabriel Martinelli couldn't and wouldn't be able to implement a similar strategy. So where is Martinelli? What is going on here, folks? And lastly, the lack of discipline. The lack of ability to both start and close out matches near or around halftime and the final whistle. Don't forget the Wolves fiasco. It continues to be a major issue for Arteta and his playing staff. For someone who is so detail-oriented, this needs immediate correction. 
The second half began, and Granite Shaka managed to rip his shirt. Odegaard and Saka tested Nick Pope, but the movement in front of the midfield began to grow stagnant. Burnley won a corner in the 53rd. It was because of Shaka being dispossessed. A short time later, the Milkman Chambers put in a hell of a cross that found Saka. But nothing came of it. And in the 55th, Saka picked up a yellow from the Las Vegas Popeye for what seemed like his first foul of the match? Question mark. Thomas Partey was dispossessed in the 57th. As a lack of match fitness started to tell. And in general, Arsenal began the half flat. Arteta felt this and tried to shake Arsenal back to life. Bringing on the Frenchman Alexander Lacazette for Martin Udegaard in the 63rd. Udegaard had a decent match. The pass to party for the half volley being the highlight of his day. That said, once again the Norwegian really failed to take the game by the scruff of its neck. Pablo Mari who was mostly untroubled in this one, nearly got caught in possession inside his own box. And a few minutes later, in the 68th, alarm bells were ringing for Arsenal as Thomas Partey was harassed off the ball by one Meteha Vaidra. And in the same sequence, Sako was nearly called for a penalty. The demon barber remonstrated... But Andre Marina, the Las Vegas Popeye, would not oblige. And in the 70th minute, Pepe finally came on for Willian. Lacazette did a five-pirouette tumble to earn Eric Peters a yellow card for a foul that did not exist. And in the 73rd, Burnley started to grab momentum. The Ghanaian party was fading, and a similar question mark from previous matches appeared in the sky. Where was Danny Ceballos? And in the 74th, a major flashpoint. Nicolas Pepe faced up Mr. Peters, and after trying to bamboozle him on the dribble, he struck the ball off Peter's body and perhaps his arm. Pepe made a half-hearted claim for a pen, and in the same sequence of play, the ball returned to Pepe. He then scooped the ball with the inside of his foot past Peters a second time, only for the Dutchman to raise his arm and clearly handle and deny progress. It was a clear-as-day penalty. So in stepped VAR. But again... Nothing given for Arsenal. Death by a thousand VARs. No love from the Las Vegas Popeye, Mr. Mariner. No pen, no red. Suck it, Arsenal. And four minutes later, Mr. Eric the Beard Peters, who had a renewed lease on life, well, he tested Bern Leno with a swerving and dipping volley. It was only tipped over the bar by the German. 
It was a brilliant save from Leno. And a short while later, Herr Leno was forced into action again against Kiwi man Chris Wood. Thankfully, the New Zealander fluffed his lines. And in the 81st, Arteta called time of death on Thomas Party's day. It came to an end and included the introduction of Danny Ceballos. Finally, long overdue. Then a minute later, a fantastic interchange between Saka and Tierney, and a fantastic cross by the latter. It found Nicolas Pepe eight yards out from goal, only for the Ivorian to fluff his lines agonizingly fluffed. It was a bad, bad miss from a man who had a point to prove. And then four minutes later, Arsenal's last best chance to take all three points once and for all was manifested. Burnley were dropping deeper, deeper and deeper and deeper, with double Louise and Arsenal pushing higher. Lacazette and Saka exchanged a neat one-two, and Saka served a fantastic cross into the box, finding Nicolas Pepe. And this time the Ivorian smashed it. His goal-bound shot was stopped in its tracks by an arm from, you guessed it, Mr. Eric Peters. But this time, old Popeye said, Andre Mariner was not having it. He showed Peters a straight red. Arsenal were awarded a penalty, and things looked brilliant. But don't forget, folks, it's Arsenal. Instead, VAR. And another reprieve for Eric Peters, play the lottery son. It was another thousandth cut from VAR, overturning both the red and the penalty. Because, of course, why not? It was deemed to be a shoulder from Peters. Infuriating. It was another Arsenal twilight zone under Arteta. And it has happened far too often this year not to feel aggrieved. And by then, folks, the match was largely over. With a few more half chances for Burnley. And Arsenal, to their credit... Nearly broke through in the 93rd, when substitute Danny Ceballos smashed a shot off the post. After some pinball wizardry in the box that would have made Mr. Pete Townsend envious. But that was all she wrote. 1-1 one, one at Turf Moor. Game. Set. Good night. There were some final takeaways from Arsenal vs. Burnley. First, Thomas Partey's match fitness, or lack thereof. He was clearly exhausted by close to the 50th minute. So why then didn't Danny Ceballos feature earlier? It was an in-game decision by Arteta that did not pay off. Let us hope 80 minutes for Partey serves him well for the matchup against Olympiakos. Second, Pepe's exclusion defies logic. 
He likely will not start against Olympiakos. And it is hard to fathom what Arteta's carrot and stick management of the Ivorian truly is. One has to ask, what does Pepe have to do to get a run of games in the side? He hates me. Third, chances burned. Arsenal created enough chances to win this game and were not clinical enough. Fourth, VAR, where bad referees go to get even worse. Three letters that have brought great injustice to the Gunners this year. It is hard not to feel hard done or singled out by some of the decisions that have gone against us. And finally, it does seem that there is a bit of an over-reliance setting up the team to make Kieran Tierney the left back, the priority as our chance creator in the team. There is a solution. We've written about it many a many a day. It's time to move Bukayo Saka to attacking center mid. What will it take for Arteta to finally recognize this? I don't know, Tom, but if you find out, let me know. Signing off. That's it. We're all done. Thanks to Silent Dave, to Isaiah. Don't forget to check out his blogs at AmericanArsenology.medium.com or look him up on Twitter. Thanks to Jay. You'll find him on Twitter as the Ball Gooner. Special thanks to Neville Southall. You can buy Mind Games, The Ups and Downs of Life and Football on Amazon. Rough Guide, $7.99 or $8.99. Shout outs to Soam D and Brandon Murphy. The music was supplied by Soundroll. Check out our blogs at AskDevils.com. I'm under the name of the Highbury Flyer. Or look us up on Facebook and Twitter. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, follow or like. Until the next time, look after yourself, stay safe and we'll see you again soon.